Hi, it's Jessica Ann, and thank you so much for listening to my podcast. We're in episode two of season three, and I've decided to do something different. I'm releasing one episode each full moon. This new schedule may come across a bit as weird, hippie stuff, but it truly feels aligned with who I am and how I want to move through the world. Also, it's backed by research and some inspiring new books I'm reading. I've been researching a lot about the new model of human consciousness, and in order to journey into a more embodied wholeness of the heart, mind, soul, and body, I need to recalibrate my system and how I create content in order to co-create a more harmonious existence. This podcast is my art. It's part of my body of work, and I realize that I don't need to do things the way I've always done them or the way that everyone else does them. As Philip Shepard writes in his book, New Self, New World, what holds us back are the very things we accept as the normal givens of the world. The normal givens of this world are that we need to operate on a rigid, demanding schedule to feed the beast of the 24-7 news cycle. But I'm finding that there's a different way to exist. I first learned about aligning your schedule with that of the moon from Douglas Rushkoff's book, Present Shock in which he describes the disconnect between our digital selves and our analog bodies, which has thrown us into a new state of anxiety, which he calls present shock. It's our obsessive need to be everywhere and do everything at once, and it's a wake-up call to collectively re-examine our relationship with time. That's why I'm releasing a podcast every full moon. So when you look up at the sky and see a full moon, you'll know I have published another podcast. I interviewed Douglas Rushkoff in episode 17 of season two, if you're interested in learning more about his work. While I believe that freedom, creativity, and presence are at the crux of our humanity, it's easy to forget that input equals output. Our minds are gardens, and if we don't have the discipline to attend to its needs, then the weeds will grow or others will plant their beliefs on our minds. So we'll need to ask ourselves, are we making progress? Is humanity making progress? Look in, wake up. The beauty of this intersection between creativity and consciousness is that marketers are turning into publishers. We are no longer beholden to the big media companies. Sales pitches are getting replaced by informative, educational content that offers meaning and value to humanity. In today's episode, I want to share with you someone who has helped me look in and wake up. You may know his father best for his tune-in, turn-on, drop-out, counter-culture phrase. Well, I'm honored that his son is my dear friend and new California neighbor, Zach Leary. He's super rad. At the core of his work is the belief that we have been fused together by the collective practice of using technology to expand our imagination with spirituality and mysticism to define the very nature of who we are. I discovered his podcast, It's All Happening, after learning about him through photographer Michael Donovan, who I talked with in episode 20 of season two. And then it got me thinking, it's funny how you can grow and evolve from people and their conversations in the digital world. I want to share with you what I'm learning. And Zach is someone you should know. Zach was kind enough to let me record from his home studio, and I'm so excited to bring you this new episode on Monday, August 7th. Happy full moon. If you enjoy my podcast, let me know in the review on iTunes or a tweet to me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as It's Jessica Ann. That's I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. Or you can shoot me an email if you're also syncing your schedule with the moon and you want to share any personal stories. I'm at Jessica at JessicaAnnMedia.com. Welcome to the Art of Humanity with Jessica Ann. 
Listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Explore creativity and consciousness. Evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's your host, Jessica Ann. Hi, I'm Jessica Ann, and this is The Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to allow you and your business to evolve. Today, I'm so thrilled to be sitting right across from the one and only Zach Leary. Zach is the host of the It's All Happening podcast. He's also a blogger, writer, futurist, spiritualist, technology consultant, and a sociocultural theorist. He's also the son of Tim Leary, who developed a philosophy of mind expansion and personal truth through LSD. So, Zach, you describe yourself as a number of these different things. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of things. Yeah, lots of these things. So, like transhumanist, uh, mindfulness, um, and a bhakti advocate. I just want to hear it kind of from you. How do you describe yourself? I love your podcast, by the way. It's so good. Thank you. I'm just in awe of how you identify with your identity. Who are you today? (laughs) (laughs) Who am I today? Yeah. Well... (laughs) That's a good question, and nobody's ever really asked me that. I mean, it's funny that the who are who are you today? Because the name of uh, the book I'm working on is called "Who Are You Now." What? Yeah. Whoa! Uh, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, that "Who Are You Now?" sort of that mantra came to me from something that Ram Dass said to me once upon a time. So I do kind of take that mantra with me into into my daily life, and it really stuck with me. Sort of this thing that happened with Ram Dass, uh, gosh, over twenty years ago now, when he said this to me: "Who are you now?" And you know, you can really take that with you into because you know the whole idea of be here now and be present and mindfulness and all of these things have really permeated our culture and become you know, sort of part of the fabric of, you know, not just like pop culture, but also of sort of daily life, just being present, being in the moment and stuff. But, you know, so what does I do for your identity, right? And so I like to think about those things. I like to constantly reinvent myself. I like to, you know, definitely leave enough room open where my identity doesn't have to be pinholed into any one thing. And that's why in my bio that you that you read there, I sort of you know they're very lofty terms that I just feel are all encompassing that leave room for me to, you know, definitely try to keep spirituality in the center and you know present throughout everything I do on a good day, <laughs> and also leave room for my interest in technology and sort of the great, amazing, changing fabric that we're seeing happening in the world today. That's a great answer. Thanks. <laughs> Giving yourself space to morph into the cosmic space of yeah. today. So, um, yeah, that can get a little bit trippy. It can. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> it, it can. And so often in the in the spiritual world, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, but within sort of like the yogic kind of community, um, you know, there, there's sort of like the, the tech, technology worlds and sort of like the fabric of where tech is going and changing us and how it's mutating us isn't recognized as much. They're kind of separate separate worlds. That's why I'm so excited <laughs> to talk with you. Yeah. Because like you've seemed to, you use both sides of that. You use mm. the spiritual side and you're also a socioeconomic person. <laughs> do you find yourself going between those two identities frequently or how do you kind of ground yourself in this mm. kind of 3D reality that the world 
is living in right now, mm. but being a spiritual, multi-dimensional being. Mm-hmm. It, it's really, I, I guess when it comes down to it, it's really just about what are you passionate about, you know, and being true to that, being authentic as best you can to the things that you're passionate about. And that really, that's what Dharma is, I think. It's Dharma, again, Ram Dass, um, you know, Ram Dass has a great sort of talk on Dharma in the mid-70s that he gave. And Dharma is not so much about just like following your path and this is your path and this is what you're supposed to be doing. It could be that, but it's also about stripping away all of the things in your environment that make your experience less than ideal. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, I just try to follow what I'm passionate about and it just happens to be those things, you know. And because of that, though, uh, it just happens to be those things, you know. It, but because of that, I have sort of formed, I guess, a point of view, especially in the fusion of spirituality with technology. You know, I've been, I've had a computer in front of my face on my desk since 1981. Wow. I mean, since I was a little kid. Oh, my gosh. So I can't, don't remember life without one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were really early adopters. You know, I had an Apple II Plus, and I've just never looked back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and so when I sort of got into expanded consciousness and, you know, all of that, whatever that entails, starting with psychedelics and then into yoga and spirituality, it's just I kind of saw the worlds blend, blending together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really all spirituality is a movement towards truth. Yes. And there's always more than one way to tap into that idea of transcendence or whatever you want to call it, enlightenment yes. today. I'm curious, what are your daily habits that kind of maybe guide you along that path, whether it's the flow state or that mm. you know, transcendent state? Do you commit to something, on any rituals or anything that you do on a regular basis? In terms of my actual practice? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. I have, I mean, I have a little practice that I think sort of works for me. I mean, I, I, I meditate, I formally meditate. And then, uh, I mean, depending on how much time I have in the day um, after that, then there's sort of like a long form version of, uh, you know, I sing, I sing kirtan and I sing chants and mm-hmm. prayers and things like that. And there's always a couple go-to ones that I sing every day on top of my meditation. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Yeah, so going back, touching upon what you mentioned about technology and that you had a computer in front of you since the 80s. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And now today we have screens in front of us everywhere we go. We do. So there's there's so much flying at us in this information world that we're in today. Um, And I think there's a beauty to that as well as a curse. So... I'm just curious. I read something on your um, on your blog that I thought was beautiful. I want to just read it here, um, just because I think it's really cool. Um, you write the wonderful thing about the technological realities of today, combined with the non dogmatic approaches to the many spiritual paths available, is that they can be blended to fit your personality in a way that also gives you the freedom to leave behind what isn't serving you. Hmm. It's not a take it or leave it proposition. The only real requirement is sincerity. After that, you're free to exist as you wish. The previous gateholders of the church or of the media don't have to be a part of your trip anymore. It's up to you. Yeah, (laughs) sounds pretty good, right? I had to write that down because I just thought it was such a beautiful way to look at technology and how we're morphing into 
our own identities and our own personas based on what technology can offer us. We are. And of course, like you said before, there's also a cautionary tale to it. There's no question about that. Uh, I think that there's a cautionary tale to it because there's no precedent. You know, there hasn't been a time ever in man's history or that we know of unless you believe in alternate realities or other you know, civilizations that have come and gone, but pretty much there's been no other time in, in the recorded history of mankind to where man has started receiving so much data and so much input on a daily basis because of screens and information flowing in. It's just, it's exponentially more than it's ever been. You know, I mean, imagine like, uh, you know, even being like, uh, you know, sort of an elite intellectual of like the 1900s or something, you know, Mm -hmm. there's only so many books you could read and there wasn't radio, there was a newspaper and, you know, so just the way that your brain would just take information and process it, then analyze it, internalize it and discuss it was so much slower. And now... You know, we have these, just these nonstop, you know, nonstop input, nonstop revelations per second, you know, and it's, there are good sides and there are, you know, there are things that we need to watch out for as well. So, but the good part about it, and back to that thing that you read is, I do believe now we, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with living sort of in this media sphere. And I think that's a really important thing that everybody needs to own. Like, you can really control your environment. People like to say, oh my gosh, you know, just, you know, social media is just full of, you know, fake news and Instagram is just whatever, half naked, whatever. But you can tailor it to customize your experience, to take in those things that interest you and find your passions and find good, smart, interesting people who are saying interesting things. But it's difficult. We'll see where it lands. That's the fun part about it is that led me to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have found you if it wasn't for technology, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, and likewise, I mean, my generation, I mean, it's really millennials, you know, my, my generation is like, you know, yes, I've had a computer every day since the 80s, no doubt, but I remember a time before, you know, smartphones. <laughs> where you actually you went home and you checked your answering machine and things like that. You know, millennials today who are just born into this, it's, yeah, it's anybody's guess. Hopefully, you know, they could grab it, internalize it, and turn it into something productive. And that's the other thing, so. is that we're almost living in these filters. Mm. So how do you kind of process life and reality when you can kind of pick and choose which reality you want? <laughs> Yeah, right. The filter bubble. Uh, yeah, the filter bubble is a it's it's a fascinating concept, and it's a really good book, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, highly recommended. Who wrote it? Uh, this guy named Eli Parsier, who was okay. one of the founders of Move On. Cool. Y- yeah, and it's sort of about the accidental side effect that it's a, that's occurred from the internet that has created echo chambers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, like how liberal people just see liberal things, mm-hmm. conservative people just see conservative things because the way the algorithms are built in Facebook and Google just to bring you stuff that it thinks you're interested in. Mm-hmm. While at first, you know, that sounded great because it was a marketer's dream. You know, to behavioral targeting, and oh my gosh, it was it was great. But then, what it's turned into, it's it's become a content funnel. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, probably not so good because it's it's gotten rid of the middle ground. I mean, you see, you know, very liberal people are passionately 
very liberal and they don't know what the center is and same with far right people as well and it's created an amazing divide in in this country um but you know back to creating your own reality um that that's that's the good thing i mean we have this program programmatic environment which which to, to live in and and the gatekeepers of the past are have become disintegrated you know yeah it's great and there's almost, um, I know that you are good friends with Douglas Rushkoff, who I, yeah. I've also interviewed him on my podcast. Oh, cool. He's amazing. Yeah, he's such a cool dude. Yeah. Um, and I listened to one of your podcasts and, you know, he wrote the book on present shock. Yes. That's the downfall of everything is like we're incapable of being in our present bodies in the present time because we aren't really fully here because of technology is taking us away from that. I want to be optimistic about where we're heading, but at the same time, everything that Rushkoff talks about and, and you talk about in all of your podcasts mm. are kind of like heading down this path of technology that gets thrown at us from all different angles. It's a, it's a big topic because, uh, again, I do think now, that I mean, being a, a citizen, a netizen, or a psychonaut, or somebody who's really passionate and lives in these spaces, again, I do think now that the novelty has worn off, you know, mm-hmm. what, uh, five, six, seven, more, more than that, but like 10 years ago when, you know, the inklings of social media, seven to 10 years ago, were just starting to really form and and sort of mature and gestate and all of those things. It was really, we were living in this novelty phase. We were like, oh my gosh, all of these things can happen, isn't it? The novelty phase is over. And it's really important that there's some responsibility that goes with it. So number one. Number two, whatever side of the fence that you're on, you know, politically speaking or socioeconomically, if you're rich, poor, conservative, liberal, I think everybody can, well, probably not everybody, but most people could agree that this road that we're going on, humanity's road that we're going on, it's not sustainable. There's no way we could keep going at this rate. The way we consume natural resources, the way we feed people or don't feed people, you know, the economics, I mean, whatever it is, it just can't keep going like this forever. So something's going to give. And... I think that the irony is that, you know, maybe technology and overconsumption and, uh, you know, whatever and lack of compassion sort of got us into the space, but technology is also going to probably save us as well. We're going to have to invent ourselves out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is probably what's going to happen. Yeah. I think we need to. We need to constantly come up with new ideas for the solution to all of these problems. We do. We, we have to. And w- whatever those are, I mean, you could take a, a, in any sort of use case from clean water to energy to fuel to food. Uh, I mean, a great, I just was uh, looking at this great, um, somebody tweeted it, and a, a little video that was posted um, by this company. I forget what they're called, but they have made... Um, they're the first company that is trying to mass produce lab-grown meat. Yikes. Sounds like yikes, but they, they have this chicken product, which they've made, and it's too expensive. They can't seem to get the co- production cost down to bring it out to market, but they're trying. But tastes like chicken, look like, looks like chicken, has the exact same DNA structure, exact same protein structure, just grown in a lab. But that's probably a good thing. 
You, know? you think so? Yeah, you're, absolutely. You're an advocate of that? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, we're not going to, you know, I, I mean, agriculture, it's a, the way that we use, you know, especially red meat consumption. I mean, it's the most mm-hmm. environmentally toxic form of industry that we have. Mm-hmm. Far surpasses automobiles or airplanes. You know, we just don't talk about it. So there you go. There's a te- technological application. Sounds weird at first, mm-hmm. but maybe it'll be great. Hey. Hey, if it requires less <laughs> killing animals, less toxic waste, less water, less food, less f- food to feed the animals, you know, that takes care of a lot of problems from the karmic ones to the environmental ones. Is it considered mm. genetically modified? It- oh, yeah. Wow. Absolutely. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't think like it, the whole GMO thing, I mean, that, that's become such a, you know, an amazing sort of far left hippie sort of scare because not all GMOs are bad. We have to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Monsanto in this country has really given a bad name to GMOs and has sort of polluted the whole, sort of perverted the whole idea of what GMOs are, but it's not all bad. That's yeah. true. That's yeah. a good way to look at it. It's, it's not. And yeah. we've been eating genetically modified foods in some form or another for a very, very long time. Right. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, and we all kind of have to do our part to know like where we're getting our food from, where we're getting our resources from, because there's overpopulation and there's just so yes. many responsibilities that we have as human beings today. I mean, it's just so easy to go down that rabbit hole and look to see how we can improve ourselves and, and improve the world. I know I've listened to your interview with uh, Duncan Trussell and mm-hmm. stuff, and you guys were talking about like the fact that like we know it's bad to eat red meat. We know it's bad <laughs> to do all of this stuff. But we do it anyway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so like, where do you kind of like draw the line or like how... You know, because it's so easy to like judge yourself when it comes to this like spiritual practice or ethical, you know, responsibility that we have. Yet we all kind of have our little weaknesses every so often. So yes, like, we do. How do you kind of go through life without judging yourself too harshly, enjoying life? <laughs> like, right. like we have so much responsibility as humans, yet we just want to enjoy ourselves. So. And and we do. We just have to do the best we can and enjoy ourselves and not be hard on ourselves. And mm-hmm. yeah, and I just was thinking the other day, like one of the great problems of the internet and of social media is that it's created this atmosphere that um, there's a problem with everything, right? I mean, there's yeah. literally a problem with everything these days. <laughs> GMOs, oh my gosh, those are chemtrails outside. You know, your iPhone is going to give you, it's made in a, in a factory in China where people are jumping off the roof and it's going to give you radiation. There's, I mean, there's a problem literally with everything. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, and and that is sort of created like this echo chamber of just like spinning out of control. Where yeah, I'm starting to kind of have a little bit of, of a problem with that because we do have to step back, and look, none of us can bat a thousand. We just have to do the best we can and be a little bit forgiving mm-hmm. on ourselves and not judge ourselves too harshly while doing the best that we can. Um, and just sort of find a little bit of balance in it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not, you know, suffer a guilt trip over it. <laughs> yeah. But but on the same on the same token, what what we're talking about with Duncan, which you reminded me of, is that a few things that have happened in the last uh, you know five or so years that I thought prior to that, when that information got out that it was going to create like a mass adoption level of change. 
And it didn't really. There were like little fits and starts and it's trickling and, and, and some, some change here and there, but it's not creating a huge giant sphere of change like I thought it would. And I'm wondering, that's what I was talking about with Duncan, what is it about us that it's, you know, like the fast food thing is like one of my favorite examples. So many people have the data now and I've seen the films and seen the terrible videos and know all the information, but they do it anyway. Why is that? Why is that? Why? I don't know. I'm 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 often perplexed myself. Mm-hmm. It's like why why is that? Like you would think, oh my gosh, once enough people saw all these terrible videos that McDonald's would close, and 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 it has, the fast food industry has changed consider, considerably, but it hasn't completely evaporated. So why is that? What it is? What is it about human beings that even given the data that we still don't make the changes mm-hmm. necessary? I don't know. I think it's just com- comfort. We're creatures of comfort. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I I agree. I think that, and also like when you enter into that kind of realm of, you know, these like you know hippies believing this, and you go down that realm of spirituality, you know, the herd mentality and spirituality is as strong there as anywhere. Yes. So it's like you almost enter right. bubbles and layers of within those communities that you're in. And it's fascinating to me because there's yeah. different levels of um, awareness that you can only access from one layer to the next kind of thing. If that right. makes any sense. It does make sense. So, but with that herd mentality, like, like, do we sacrifice awareness when we sort of go into that, like, that herd mentality? Yeah, maybe that, a little bit. That's my question. That's a yeah. yeah. That's my question to you. Is is yeah, yeah? What do we do? We let go of when we are in that herd mentality. Do we? Is it awareness? Is it? Is it our a part of our identity? Is it? It's that's a great question. Donald Trump is a great example because I think most people. I mean, of course, Trump had his core base that you know, really believed the bullshit. And, you know, that base is fine. They can believe what they wanted to believe. But there were a lot of other people, like 52% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Wow. 52%. You know, so that just, that math alone means that a hu- millions and millions of women just chose to ignore that and then went with the herd. Oh, well, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't matter. Just, uh, and I don't know. It's just part of a greater... You know, it's part of a greater message, and they could just sort of forget the details. Mm-hmm. And you know, we live in it. You know, it didn't used to be like this. You know, back in most of you know the 20th century, you didn't have all of the you know the facts on, especially political candidates. You know, they could keep secrets so well back in the day. You know, that stuff just couldn't couldn't get out because of the way media would get disseminated. But now, I mean, my gosh, you know all these awful truths about the president, and he still won. Mm. So it just it just goes to show. I don't know. I, I, to me, it goes to show in this case that marketing is still <laughs> really yeah. as powerful as ever. Right? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, you're a marketer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Going into a little bit about like this darkness, we're kind of in this dark tunnel right now with mm. uh, everything that's happening in our world. I'm curious, how do you, and I know you're big on karma yoga, mm. it's the yoga of action. 
It purifies the heart by teaching you to act selflessly without thought or reward. By detaching yourself from the fruits of your action, you sublimate your ego. How do you incorporate goodness today when there so, seems to be so much darkness in the world? Hmm. How do I incorporate goodness? Well, I mean, it does start with my own practice. You know, I, I do think, um, you know, my, my own practice does, it, it is uh, based in a manifestation of goodness. And, you know, the, the, depending what side of the fence you're on in the whole yogic world, but in, in my tradition, you know, the rep, repetition, the recitation of these mantras is a very, very powerful practice. And, you know, I, I honor that. And, and I do think that getting other people as well, uh, and I do, and just little bits here and there, getting other people as well to, to as well engage in, engage in this practice of, of mantras is putting goodness out into the world, um, you know, in just the little bits that I can. Um, and, you know, I've reluctantly... Took me a while to get to this place, but I did reluctantly um, kind of come to the or made friends with anyway that my podcast, you know, does. Uh, you know, I I'm doing my little my little bit, you know, and you know the the few letters that I do get when I do get them, it's just it's amazing and it makes it all worthwhile. You know, you just do get these amazing letters that people will say, "Oh my gosh, I never you know thought of it this way," and they you know they've become different as a result. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, that's one really powerful thing about uh, about media and about all of us having our, our little media stations. You know, Jessica Ann does, Zach Lurie does. We all have our little, our little stations is that we can, we can do good with them and we should try to use them for good. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what doing the work is. Yes, that's what it is. Going deep down these alleys and you know not knowing what you'll bring back at right. a given point in time. That's a good point. I like that. Not knowing what you'll bring back. That's right. <laughs> Do you have a choice when you start entering this path whether you can back out or is like this is my calling, this is my dharma, this is what I'm meant to do in this world. Are are you, do you hmm. ever get uh, distracted or letting, you know, other kind of thoughts take over where you kind of don't want to go down that path because of maybe something, you know, just society saying, like, trying to get you into the matrix again, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's all this talk that we, we have that you talk about on your podcast is kind of like exiting the matrix. Like we're in different mm-hmm. kind of realities, like yeah. people that um, don't really tap into this level of, and I, and I say it, like I'm not always here. I'm, I'm not saying it as some like divine being, but sure. just people who meditate and we can access these different energies. How do you how do you kind of find yourself walking this path um, so fearlessly in a, in a society that teaches you and wants you to be afraid? <laughs> well, I mean, specifically regarding the spiritual path, I, you know, I stumbled around for a lot of years, not really, you know, kind of fledgling, going, yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure if that feels right, if this is right. You know, I don't know. But then when I, it's a sort of a specific, just little shift in my path and sort of um, meeting a certain lineage and the right people and whatever. But, and that really changed for me. And I was like, oh, okay. 
So this is it. And then, you know, once that sort of happened, um, you know, I haven't really wavered since. But it really goes back to, you know, my first psychedelic experience. It's still the best metaphor. Because, you know, when you have a really good, vivid psychedelic experience, you know, that one psychedelic experience that changed everything, that pierced the veil, you can never go back. You can never, you'll never look at the world the same way again. And everything that I've done since has just been sort of a, you know, a reaffirmation of that, you know, sort of the method is different um, in my spiritual practice, but it reconfirms the same thing. You can just never look at the world the same way again. And, and I think the only difference is that like when I plug back into the matrix, I just know that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. You see, like yeah. I do, of course I plug back into the matrix. Everybody does. Right. You know, I still like things that feel good and take, you know, and I still succumb to desire and, and, and sense pleasures. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not living in a cave in India. I'm still of the material world. And, you know, I'm a pretty, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, fledgling yogi for sure. So I can still walk in between those worlds, but you know when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And you know that the difference is, uh, you know, what's commonly referred to as the Maya. The Maya is not just illusion, the Maya is the false attachment to the illusions that make you happy. So if, like, you know, I don't know what kind of car you drove here, but if you say you drove a Rolls Royce here, right? Mm-hmm. Great. You drive a Rolls Royce. That's really beautiful. It's a beautiful car, right? Very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with driving the beautiful car. The only thing that's wrong is that if you absolutely think that you need that beautiful car to make you happy, if that is absolutely defining your happiness, then we have a problem. Mm, yeah. There's a difference. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things and, you know, and taking, you know, having temporary pleasures. It's just knowing that you don't need them to make you happy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to what you said earlier about um, your experience when you were on, um, what kind of drug were you on? Were you- Oh, that was probably LSD. LSD. When I was a teenager, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, drugs are definitely portals to other dimensions. Yes. And um, temporary, temporary portals. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm just curious. Do you think there are ways you can access those different dimensions in contemplative practices? Like, because I know I, I'm not into drugs um, at all. I'm kind of <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I just meditate a lot, and I Great. and I've had a lot of meditation experiences that make me feel like I am on some type of drug. Hmm. So, is there a difference between? Um, doing drugs versus contemplative practices when it comes to accessing those different dimensions? No, I mean, I don't think the the actual method, I'm not a zealot in that the method is absolutely essential and whatever method works for you. Yeah, you know, uh, but with... And not that it's a it's it's a, it's a technicality for, for certain, but... Um, you know, most of us in the psychedelic community, we like to think of it as medicine, not drugs, because drugs has taken on such a oh, totally, it's the connotation of it's it, a, a sure. nasty connotation. Yeah. And the fact remains that uh, every single indigenous culture on the planet has used some form of mind or mood altering psychedelic mm-hmm. within its indigenous state. And, you know, that was very true until not that long ago. Uh, so, you know, the, the plant medicines and all of these things, um, 
yes, they're 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 great portals to, to sort of take you there. But meditation can do it, yoga can do it, pranayama can do it, kirtan can do it, whatever mm-hmm. can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so cool. Whatever works. Yeah. You know? <laughs> as long as you do something that works for you. Right. That's the thing. It's sort of keeping the discipline, right? Right. Like if you meditate once for 15 minutes and go, oh, well, that was great, but then you never do it again, then it's, you know, it requires rinse and repeat. <laughs> it reminds me of that, uh, yeah, that David Data quote, how you like infinity disclosed is a matter of taste. Right. So yes. we all have That's it. different matters of taste and how to access that infinity or divinity or whatever we do want to call it. Totally. These days. Totally. So, so yeah, I, I'm just curious. Um, what was, I'm sure you, this is the number one question you get all the time <laughs> about your father. Sure. Um, what was it like growing up? And I know this for a fact because I listen to your podcast and mm-hmm. people ask you this all the time, but <laughs> I want to just know, like for my listeners who may be new to you and your work, um, what was like one of the defining moments that you can remember from your childhood being raised by Tim Leary? What was one of the defining moments? Um, hmm. Gosh, I don't know. The actual defining moments. Uh, memorable moments. God, there's just, there were just so, so many, so mm-hmm. many for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I was, when I was really young, when I was, you know, just like a child under 10, uh, I, I didn't understand what it is he did. You know, I just, I knew he wrote books. I knew that. And I knew he kind of, he would leave you know, to go on lecture tour. And I knew he did that, and I didn't know why he was famous or anything. Because, um, you know, when you're eight years old, there's no way you can understand, you know, what, why he was well-known, you know? Right. <laughs> but then I, I was probably, I don't know, maybe between 10 and 12, he was, you know, he also had this kind of sub-career occasionally of being like a B-movie actor. Now and then someone would hire him to be in a play a funny part in a movie or something. And he took me to the set, which was at Universal, uh, Universal lot, and I remember. And I was standing around the set, and I was just a little kid, and I was standing around the set, and it's cool standing on movie sets, you know? And he's there doing his scene, and I'm just sitting there, and then some grip or lighting guy is right next to me, uh, and he doesn't know my connection. And he just said, God, I cannot believe they're allowing that evil man to be in this movie. No way. Yeah, and I'm just sitting there going, oh my God, why would he say this about my dad? That's so insane. Oh my God. And I wasn't like hurt or offended. I was amazed. I was like, why would he say that? <laughs> you know? okay. And and I remember in the car ride home, you know, I, I asked him, why would somebody say that? And then he started to explain it to me. I was still too young to understand, but he started to explain it to me why someone might think that. And I remember that being just... It just like okay, well, this guy's different, you know. That mm-hmm. he 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 must have been whatever he was doing, you know, and within his profession to piss people off, you know, he must have been doing something completely radical, mm-hmm. and that's when I kind of started to form kind of an understanding. Yeah, and there, there's always that moment where you, mm. as a kid, where you realize that your parents aren't, you know, this reverent being. <laughs> yes. So. Oh gosh, so many of those. I, I mean, he was so human, and mm-hmm. oh my gosh, of course, we had all the basic, you know, mom, dad, son, you know, problems, and 
full of complete humanity. But, uh, you know, I do like to say, and I have always said it, obviously when you're in something uh, as a kid, you don't know that it's any different because you have nothing to compare it to. It's just how I grew up. How would you know? Right. It's different or unique. Yeah. But, and I do say that, and that, that there's a part of that is true, but I've been thinking about it more and more, and as I started to become a teenager, I w- did start to realize that it was pretty extraordinary because of their friends. Mm-hmm. You know, when sort of you open the door and so-and-so was at the door or something like that. And mm-hmm. Then it was pretty, I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. And all of my friends were like, oh my God, no way. That person was over? <laughs> yeah, and then that's, and for me, I was, you know, I was a deadhead. I was really into classic rock. And, you know, so any sort of brushing up against that world, I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> and then when you have Ram Dass over, yes. that's a whole other element. <laughs> that's a whole other element, yes. <laughs> but let's just circle right back to where we began, the Ram Dass story. I'm curious, because you touched <laughs> upon that in the beginning. The who are you now thing. Yeah, mm. let's circle back to that. <laughs> A little bit, just because I'm, I'm curious about that experience that you had as a kid with Ram Dass. Well, that story, the Who Are You Now story, I was um, 22. Okay. Yes, so yeah. 20, yeah, tw- I was 22. I was a young adult. No, I was 21. I was mm-hmm. 21. And, yeah, and I said this the last time somebody asked me about this story, but you know, I'm not a stand-up comic. You know, I, don't, I don't have material, as it were. But this sort of story has sort of become my material and I've told it on so many podcasts now and it's kind of funny but basically what happened I took ketamine in an isolation tank and jumped out of the tank and I didn't know but my dad and Rondos were sitting three four feet away from the, the tank and they didn't know I was in I didn't know they were out, outside and I jumped out of the tank after taking ketamine inside of the tank and getting a little a little squirrely and there they were just sitting, sitting right in front of me and I just was we were all kind of locked into this silent eye contact and it was very, very, just the universe stood still for a second and then Ram Dass leaned into me and said, who are you now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it stuck with me. I'll never forget it. I mean, it was like one of those defining moments. You know, Ram Dass tells the moment when he met his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, when he was standing there in India underneath a moon and with the Land Rover and, you know, and, and this, this Indian guru started telling Ram Dass about his mother dying of spleen just six months prior. And Ram Dass was like, how can he possibly know that? You know, that was his big miracle. Mm. And Ram Dass saying, who are you now to me in that moment was my big, you know, defining moment. And you'll continue. I'll continue. I, yeah, I mean, I don't. I encourage everyone to continue. I don't really know what it means. Uh, I just, I don't really know what it means, but I know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. If, that, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Because yeah. you're going to be writing a book about that. Yeah, too. exactly. So. <laughs> and when are you expecting that to be released? Oh, I don't know. Hopefully within the year. Awesome. Yeah, I've got a lot done. Great. So yeah, I'm working hard on it. I can't wait to read it. Thanks. So where can listeners find you online? ZachLeary.com. Mm-hmm. And my podcast is up there. And then I'm also the host of the Maps podcast now as well, which is kind of a second podcast that I've been working on. And yeah, everything's there at ZachLeary.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, yeah. Zach. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Art of Humanity. Please follow us on Twitter at It's Jessica Ann. Join us next week with your host, Jessica Ann.
Evolve your business with the art of humanity.